Hello everyone, I'm Eloise Seidlin and this is Change It. We are living through a fundamental shift in the way we work. Automation and AI machines are replacing human tasks and changing the skills that companies look for in their people. But what will the future look like? I am so excited by this conversation, how relevant it is to us all and how insightful Michael is. I think change managers and people leading organisational, operational, process, whatever change, are at the heart of this era. Michael Predis, an international thought leader in ANI with a degree in change management, is someone that is helping inform this conversation through his company Fathom AI. Fathom is an enterprise SaaS AI scale-up, and it's the world's data source for the fourth industrial revolution and the future of work used to predict the impact of technological and digital disruption. Fathom was launched in 2017 and is currently being used by governments, investors, universities and major companies across the globe. Fathom was one of the first companies worldwide to be invited to join the World Economic Forum Centre for the Fourth Industrial Revolution and Michael is a member of the Forum's Global AI Council. Before founding Fathom, Michael was a partner at the Boston Consulting Group and Managing Director of Asia's BCG technology innovation practice called Digital Ventures. COVID having propelled our plight in Workforce of the Future forward as much as five years, I was dying to speak to Michael about the role of change in the fourth industrial revolution. Michael joined me from a WhatsApp room which was surrounded by egg boxes. If you haven't seen the video, then jump to my LinkedIn channel where you'll see Michael in a spacey looking room. Michael was so warm to speak to. Honestly, his views on this topic, just so refreshing so positive, dispelling the fear and cutting through the noise to create inspiring visions. I hope you enjoy listening to this one as much as I enjoyed speaking to him. Hi Michael and welcome to episode five of Change It. Thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. I've done an introduction for the listeners but it'd be really great if you could provide a bit of an overview of who you are and what you do. Okay great so firstly thanks for the opportunity to, to contribute to this series. Um, so my name is Mike Priddis. I'm the founder and CEO of an AI company called Fathom. Before Fathom, I was a partner at the Boston Consulting Group, and I was the managing director of BCG's technology innovation practice for Asia. Before that, I set up and ran a product design and product development company. Before that, I worked in change management and strategy consulting. So probably a little bit of affinity with some of the people in there who might be listening. In terms of what we do, it's worth going back a bit. So when I worked at BCG, my job was to work with companies all over the Asia-Pacific region, also Europe and North America, to help them design and build new technology products. And going back to about 2010, 2013 or so, that sort of period, I started to see a pattern. So this is before Fourth Industrial Revolution or Future of Work with Things. The, the pattern was that I would be handing over the results of what we built. And as an example, I led the design and build of India's first digital bank, I've launched an insurance company in, in Thailand. I led the build of Vogue in China, which was pretty interesting as somebody who doesn't know much about fashion or China. But yeah, I'd hand over the results of what we, what we built. And I'd be talking to the CEO, CMO, CTO, CDO, CIO. Chief HR was never in the room. Change management, never in the room. Org design, never in the room. And quite often at that time, so this is seven, eight years ago, people regarded that type of work as really a fulfillment center rather than a driver of strategy or a driver of value. So strategy would be set by the CMO, CTO, CIO, and the guys in HR and org design change management would come in to deliver. And the problem that I started to see was that 
because we could see the impact of these new technologies, these disruptive products, because we were building them, and because we could see that across industries and across countries, we saw that something was happening. Now, that's since become known as the fourth industrial revolution, but back then it didn't have a name. And so I started to have, you know, some really kind of quite unsettling conversations because I'd be saying to clients, okay, here's your thing. What are you going to do with the people that are affected by this? Because over the next couple of years, you're going to shut that call center. You're going to change the branch network. You're going to change the way that the internal processes are built and structured and the people doing them. How are you going to manage the, sh- the change in the people? You know, not all of them are going to make it through this, but there are going to be other jobs you're going to need. Are you thinking of retraining these people or what? And they said, no, we'll, we'll, we'll let them go and we'll hire some other people. Or we'll tell them and we'll start that in a year or two's time. Or no, we don't really, haven't really thought about that. We're just focusing on selling the new product. And, you know, I grew up in quite a socially orientated environment. My father was quite senior in the British government. And I've kind of grown up with that kind of worldview that government and industry and the community kind of fit together in a system. And you can't just do these things without thinking about the human impact. And so I approached the CSIRO and I said that I would like through BCG to fund a research study to look at the impact of emerging technology on Australian jobs and industries. So we ran a nine month project. I rotated about 20 of my team through it. And I took the results, or the results, by the way, fed into Turnbull's National Innovation Science Agenda. And I took that to BCG and I said, look, I think we should build a data platform. I'll come back to why a data platform in a second. But I said, I think we should build a data platform to help companies and governments around the world to understand the changes that are ahead and so they can deal with these changes in, a, in, a, in, a, in an informed way. And BCG said, no, <laughs> keep selling projects around Asia. So I left and set up Fathom. So just to come back to this piece around data, one of the things that I experienced time and time again with all these clients is that you can get an executive table together, right? You've got all the people sitting around it and the board and the senior managers, and you quite quickly get into these little kind of camps. So the CTO, CFO, COO, and CIO get together and they're like, well, we don't want to do what those marketing and salespeople want to do. We want to do our thing. And the marketing and salespeople say, well, those internal guys don't know what they're talking about. This is how we're going to drive value. And one of the ways you cut through that and you get that kind of consensus is by having good, objective, reliable data that's like a single source of truth for that organization that shows the future or shows you know, what the different scenarios are. And so time and again, I've used good data modeling to be a kind of a level setter so that the change can be discussed in an objective rather than a politicized way. And so I thought it would be a good idea if we built a a platform to gather as much data as we could about work and jobs and industries and companies and so on. And then we use AIs to kind of do some of the analyses and to kind of tie it together. We take in huge amounts of data from our clients and then we model that client's future. You know, technology future, economic future, the impact of COVID and so on, in an objective way that we surface through the SaaS platform so that people can sit down and have the same conversation about the same thing and hopefully manage change, given the period that we're in, is just so much change, they can manage that change in a much more informed way. So that's that's what we do. Great, thank you. And so my next question, Michael, was going to be around what Fathom do, but from the sounds of that, Fathom provide a diagnostic across companies on their current state to what their future state and the capability yeah. gap. Yeah, that's it in a, in a very high level. So I'm kind of unpacking that a little bit. So there's a lot of doom and gloom in the media about the impact of technology on jobs. You know, if you believe what you see in the media, this is kind of white collar Armageddon the hollowing out of the economy, universal basic income and all that sort of stuff. And it's not true. 
when we see the impact of tech, we see three changes, automation, augmentation, and addition of new tasks. And so the first thing the platform does is it allows a company to describe its technology strategy so that they can see the effect on jobs. And the way we do that is in the analytics under the platform, or within the platform. The heart of it is an occupation ontology, which is depicted as a knowledge graph. And it describes every job in every industry, in every country, if you like, at the molecular level. So we have a task model of about 25,000 tasks, 13,000 skills. We integrate all the major job tax, taxonomies around the world. And we, we update it continuously. And so we have this kind of single source of truth that's now become you know, regarded around the world as the definitive article when it comes to jobs. Um, and I can back that up in a second, but it's now regarded as the best description of work available anywhere. What then sits around the ontology? Firstly, there's a technology adoption and availability model. So we describe the impact of emerging tech and we show how that technology could be deployed or applied by a particular company in a particular industry, in a particular country over time. We describe the effect of COVID and the way that COVID is, is being experienced in a particular country. So if you like, what's the epidemic below, below the pandemic for each country? And what does that mean for workplace risk? How do we keep people safe? What's an essential job? What job can be done remotely? What's the productivity impact of sending people home? The third piece is then to describe the economic context and the industry context. The, if you like, the, the problem we're addressing there is that in January last year, Telstra, British Telecom, AT&T and Telefonica all had the same needs when it came to tech. In March 2021, they're different because COVID has impacted those you know, workforces differently, the communities differently, but the government policy about COVID is different in those different jurisdictions. So we have JobKeeper or furlough schemes or what have you. And so we model that. And then that all comes up to some very simple, easy to use tools at the SaaS layer, which means that you don't have to be a data scientist, you don't have to be technical, you basically just use the, the, the platform to describe, okay, this is our technology strategy. Oh, these are the number of new jobs we'll create. These are the jobs that we'll automate, but this is the pathway through learning and development for these people to get new jobs in the future. And so the key point here is that we don't, you know, we don't, we're working to reduce the number of people made redundant by giving people learning and development pathways to jobs in the future. Just a couple of quick kind of dot points to back up, I guess, what I've just said. We're the first company in Asia Pacific to be invited to join the World Economic Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. World Economic Forum also a couple of years ago asked me to join the Global Artificial Intelligence Council. Uh, and I was, that has, I've got to tell you, that is the scariest room I've ever been in. 32 people, including the CEO of Salesforce, the chairman of MasterCard, the director of Stanford AI, British Minister for Digital, even Will I Am. And they're all there because they got these huge jobs and I'm there because we've got more data about this than anybody. Uh, we're the first non-British company to win the UK government's Tech Rocketship Award for AI. We launched three years ago. We've now got clients in 21 industries in 26 countries. It's an incredible accolade, Michael. Like right place at the right time, I think. <laughs> um, and on that then, so like for, for those that are listening, there is this huge gap in knowledge on what AI is. And as you so rightly say, there's a lot of misconceptions and fear about what AI is. So those that might be familiar with it will, will have heard some terminology like I, I know a very granular level, AGI, ANI and ASI, a yeah. term I've read about. Could you explain the difference? Yeah, sure. So um, ANI is artificial narrow intelligence, AGI is artificial general intelligence, and ASI is artificial superintelligence. Um, the good news is that we don't have AGI or ASI yet. 
So ANI, artificial narrow intelligence, is a an algorithm or series of algorithms and you know tools like machine learning or deep learning, neural networks, and so on, that are there to do a specific thing. And they do that thing better than you or I. It might be to calculate, to map, to depict, to analyze, to find. But we basically taught these systems how to do something very, very well, very, very niche. And that's and that's the AI that we use across the board. It's all AI. AGI is almost human-like. So that's, we are generally intelligent in a bunch of different things. So, you know, so we can see, smell, drive, communicate, listen, and so on. And at the moment, we're building ANIS to do those individual tasks. And at some stage on the not too distant you know, horizon, there'll be systems that are collections of those ANIs that form a general level of intelligence across a collection of tasks. And at that point, the things start getting quite interesting in terms of the impact on, on industry and jobs and you know, new industries being created. We're not, we're not at that point yet, so we're not at AGI yet. There's a lot of debate as to whether we will ever get to ASI, so artificial superintelligence, depending on who you read. Some people think it will never happen. Some people think it will happen a few minutes after AGI. So the, the, distant, the, the difference in points of view here is that Depending on how we set up artificial general intelligence, if we give that AGI the ability to learn and the ability to kind of self-develop, which might be, because at the moment you, you can build an AI that will build an AI or build an AI that would develop code or, right? So if you give the AGI the ability to learn and self-develop and if that learning and self-development is unmanaged, then it's possible that that AGI will seek to improve itself for very positive reasons but quickly gather more information and intelligence and capabilities than, than a person has and become super intelligent. The counterpoint is that because that is possible, it would be managed in a way that would not let that happen. And so there's a bit of a debate about super intelligence and what super intelligence might mean. And then from an ethical perspective, whether super intelligence should be allowed. And then from a practical perspective, whether it's possible, whether it would be switched off, whether whether, 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 we don't know. But there are these kind of delineations. The good news is right now, all we need to worry about is ANI, so artificial narrow intelligence, which is the ability of an AI to do a particular thing. And the ANI, Michael, thank you for those differentiators. That's the one that is currently disrupting what we coin workforce of the future that is displacing roles. So a good example would be um, a combination of different AIs doing something like a personal assistant. So you can have a situation where, and some of these things are in early stages of development and the individual components of what I'm about to go through do exist. So we have a voice AI capability so that the, we can speak into a device and the device will understand what we're saying and conversation exchange. So it will talk back to us contextually. We have NLP, so we can then use that information. We can get into the text, into the semantic meaning, not just the explicit words, and apply that to a particular model and make sense of it. You know, we can then hook in something that's like a diary management AI. We can have something that might order products from a shop. We might have something that talks to another person to set a meeting. And kind of, you don't have to go too far to kind of describe the work of a personal assistant. And that would mean that we might not require people in those roles. Um, so all this stuff is kind of possible. However, in practice, it kind of works a bit differently. So the conventional kind of wisdom is that as soon as we start rolling what I've just said into call centers, we automate call centers. When we put intelligent robotics into a warehouse, we don't need any distribution center staff. And 
that is kind of happening, but it's actually kind of not. What tends to happen when call centers get voice AI is that rather than shedding everybody in the call center, we feel like upgrade their jobs. We don't treat them as automated. We say we've automated elements of their tasks, but we've augmented the individual. And so, for example, let's say that I work in a call center, instead of answering the phone about bill inquiries or, you know, where's my parcel, which is pretty straightforward, I get retrained to deal with more complex items. We provide a better level of service to the individual customer. And so what we're seeing at the moment is rather than technology removing people from the workforce and, and, and creating this kind of huge swathe of people that are unemployed, what we're seeing is a much more augmentation driven thing where individual people are being retrained, reskilled, retasked, redeployed into, into, into new jobs. One of our clients globally is Zurich Insurance. And in November last year, um, an article came out in the UK saying that Zurich were going to retrain 3,000 of their employees for new jobs of the future using Fathom software. So that's just a really nice kind of example. I mean, I grew up in the north of England. You know, I know where the Zurich call centre is in, in just outside Manchester, or at least it used to be. And, um, you know, that's 3,000 people not looking for a new job in the pandemic. You know, I mean, this, this kind of matters to me that the, the companies are able to do these things. And, and really, they're able to do it because we've been able to show them you know, what those pathways are from today's jobs to tomorrow's and running those scenarios of different technology over the top and saying, this is where we will create demand for people. And there are two or three things that we say to try and simplify everything I've just said, which is, number one, it is cheaper to retrain and redeploy than make redundant and rehire. The second thing is that your future employees already work for you. They're just in different jobs. right? And when you kind of think about it in that way, you're like, oh, okay, maybe it's not that bad after all. Thank you. And for our listeners who are predominantly kind of change and transformation professionals, Michael, they're probably sat there with burning questions about, you know, how they can assist and what advice would you give to those professionals looking to play a role in workforce of the future endeavours? So five, six years ago, when I started talking to people about this, everybody was either in one of two camps. They either knew what the future of work was and fourth industrial revolution and they were terrified or they didn't know. Right. And the world has changed a lot in the last five years. So now there's kind of basically four groups. The first group tend to be large companies, sophisticated you know, companies that have realized that future of work is an addressable question. They've bought our software or they've you know, engaged the big consulting firms and then usually kind of quite often those firms use our software and they've created a team of people whose job it is to manage the effect of, of technology, COVID and economic change on jobs and to retrain people. And the number one, the number one thing for people working in change management or design and so on in those companies is to get comfy with the data, you know, and, and that doesn't mean be a data analyst or a data scientist, but just able to have a kind of a conversation that's data informed. And I mean, I did a graduate certificate in change management before an MBA, right? So I understand, you know, I've got a background in this area and, and data is not really a topic that, that a lot of people get taught. So understanding, you know, the basics, you know, we've collected this data, we've applied an algorithm, we've run some scenarios that are showing us that there are four things that might be possible. Of those four, this one's the one we want, and this is then the plan. That's a data-informed conversation, but they need to be able to have those conversations in order to be part of the broader plan. Where we see senior leaders in, in HR and operations, whenever they can't, they tend to get excluded quite quickly. And the people who can tend to make the decisions. And I don't think that's right. I think we should have people who are trained in change management, in learning and development, HR and people and so on, as, as a vital and key part of this. The second group 
are organizations that have not yet resourced this, but understand that this is a thing. You know, so the CEO or the board or the, an executive have said, go and do a project, figure out what our response to future of work is. And that just means they're on that journey. They're just not quite that where that first group was. And again, the same, it's the same response. Just kind of read up on the topic, understand that this is not actually that scary. This is not actually bad news. There's not actually universal basic income and job losses. And that, you know, all we need to do is begin. Like any big thing, the first step's the hardest one. The third group are people who are kind of aware but haven't done anything about it. And the fourth group are people who don't know about it. So don't be in the fourth group. Don't be in the fourth group and get to know data. Get well, well, actually, I mean, there's a reason to not be in the fourth group or even the third. And that is this whole period is, is characterized by what people describe as exponential change in technology. Right now, whether you believe that things are truly exponential, they're moving really quickly. Right. The, the changes in tech, the changes in the economy, the changes in industry, the impact of COVID, there's a lot going on. Throughout history, it's been quite common for companies or you know, anybody, any group of people to play it safe and be fast followers. Right? And we, we all know examples of where clients or our, our employers say, OK, well, we can see this issue, but we're going to look and see what the big banks in the UK and the US are doing. Or we're going to look and wait and see what Tesco's is doing or, or Carrefour. Or we're gonna, you know, there's, there's always somebody to look at. And we'll, we'll be a fast follower. In a world where the, the curve is getting quicker over time, if you're a fast follower, it's not very smart because you don't see the lessons and the insights and the failures and, and the experiences that these leaders have as they're working on this thing internally. You just see the result when it comes out. And then you're trying to reverse engineer whatever they did and apply it to your own organization, but they've been working on it for two or three years and they start to move up that curve, right? And then you start and you're making some progress, but they're, they're further up the curve. They're pulling further and further and further away. And what that means is that fast followers will get smaller in the rear view mirror. And so it, it's a really, really, it's quite a dangerous time for people who, who are going to wait and see because the companies and the people who are thinking, okay, this is complex. It's scary. I don't know about it, but I probably need to read up on it. I probably need to get comfy with it. I probably should kind of maybe, you know, try and take an hour or two a week to read on these topics or go to some conferences or events or follow some people on Twitter. They're the people, they're the companies that are getting on that curve. And the people that are saying, oh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty difficult, but um, I'll wait and see what my direct competitors do, and then I'll do something similar. They're, they're probably in for a harder time than they might think. It's, 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 it, it is because there's just so much change going on. I worry about the people that are playing a wait and see kind of approach. And that's really at the individual as well as at the kind of corporate level. On the other hand, and not to be too glum about things, those companies that, that, that jump in, that are saying, yeah, I mean, let's take, let's, let's, we don't have to spend a lot of money. Let's just have a couple of experiments going. Let's look at robotic process automation because it's super simple. There's 101 providers out there. You know, you've got UiPath and Blue Prism, minefields here in Australia. You know, there's, there's organizations all over the world that will come in and put one or two bots into your finance function, you know, or into your admin. And no one's going to lose their job. It's all about efficiency but it's much more about that familiarization the familiarity that you get by doing something it's low cost and again fathom doesn't provide that i'm not selling anything here it's an honest recommendation to just do something quite small with a couple of bots somewhere in an admin process and it's got to the point where you know you look at uipath's website you can download these things and do it without any real kind of help from them is that is that straightforward 
and then you learn by doing and you get the familiarity with it by practicing it rather than just by reading about it and then before you know it you're doing things at more scale and you're starting to think about retraining your colleagues and, and then before you know it you're one of the leaders or at least you're up there with the leaders and for those that are looking just to start by doing some reading then, I mean, you mentioned uh, a couple of things that you'll send across, which I'll include in the show notes, but are there any really good sources that you would recommend? Given I'm an ex-BCG partner, I wouldn't really look at many of the big consulting firms for kind of thought leadership on this. They tend to be talking to um, the executives and the board in the stuff that they produce. And it's not that the stuff is not interesting, but it's not really kind of practitioner ready. So I, if you go to some of the organizations I mentioned, so UiPath, Blue Prism, Automation Anywhere, those three are probably the leaders in, in the kind of process automation area. And most companies start this journey with internal processes. The reason for that is no company wants to experiment with a new technology that impacts their customer relationships. Because you get it wrong, you lose customers, right? So mostly, and I, in fact, I don't know of any exceptions to this, whether it's hardware automation or software, companies tend to do this in an internal environment that they can control. You know, so the finance, finance process or let's say a mortgage application process or something reasonably straightforward, completely definable and controllable and observable and measurable. And so they tend to start with something small internally and then kind of go up from there. In a, in a um, hardware sense, it might be, um, we've done work with people like Rio Tinto and BHP, and it will be an autonomous vehicle in a mine. But again, that's a controlled environment. You know, in agriculture, it might be a drone that's observing plant growth or whatever in a field. Again, a controllable environment. So I, I think I would personally, if I was starting to this sort of journey from scratch, is I would try and think about, you know, trying to find some examples of how technology and automation might have been deployed in my industry. So I would, you know, let's say that we work in um, say dairy farming, just to be really specific. I'd just Google automation technology and dairy farming and see what I got. Linking this back then to particularly beyond technology, what I'm seeing across the change transformation space in these very people orientated people is a real demand across industries, particularly in Australia, for org redesign or org design. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this space in, in the role of Workforce of the Future? Because it's undeniable that it's linked to the organisational structure. Absolutely. So you know, I know that the consulting firms do a lot of this. I always had a problem with the idea of business transformation or workforce transformation because I thought it was it was quite surprising that people might would think that they could define a future state today. I don't see any evidence that we are at any point of maturity when it comes to technology. I am absolutely certain that we've got more tech change ahead of us than behind us. So the idea that we would get in a room today and design the future organization and then move to it has always surprised me because I always felt, well, surely when we get there, we'll need to do it again. And so... I've always felt with the idea of transformation and change and what have you, that the single biggest kind of muscle to build is the ability to keep learning, keep changing. And that's difficult if you're an executive or if you're working in change management, because you've got to go to the exec and you've got to say, yeah, I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I need some money to get there. 
And, and I think that's difficult to do again without data. I think if you can present a pathway and you say, well, next year and the year after and the year after, this is what we'll need. We're going to set up a model that allows us to be, you know, functionally led, but regionally located or, you know, regionally led, but, you know, however it might be. We're going to inform the people in that in this particular way. But one of the things that we're going to really, really dial up is the organization's resilience and capacity for change. We're going to dial up our ability to communicate change. We're going to dial up our, our readiness for change. We're going to make sure that everybody in the business is continuously aware of what's happening contextually and therefore that there might be change coming ahead. And I, and I think it's the readiness for change rather than getting to a destination and going, okay, did that, what's next? It's like, oh my God, I'm going to do it again, right? And, you know, when I when I did my, I did a grad, graduate certificate in change management, the Australian Graduate School of Management. And one of the kind of things that we were taught at the beginning was a, a thing by a guy called Kurt Lewin, who back in the 50s had this idea of unfreeze, change, refreeze. Right? And that's quite a convention when it comes to how we go about doing this. And it's like, well, first we've got to tell people that this is going to happen, then we do it, and then we kind of lock them back in place. And then the other ideas that kind of built on from that is sort of storming, forming, norming, or you know, it might be the other way around, forming, storming, norming. The point is with both of those is that you get to a point at the end where it's norming or refreeze. I don't think we should do those steps. I think we should just keep keep the fluidity going in the middle, but create the capacity for people in the organisation to be comfortable with that and to say, every 12 months we'll review the structure and the roles every 12 months we'll, we'll come up with a new training plan that's much more strategic for you that gives you the skills to be able to do that and and if i can kind of segue there into skills and, and start thinking a bit about well, what do people need I, I often get asked you know what are the jobs and skills of the future and you know i wish i had a kind of silver bullet and i could say this is the one rather than try and pick a particular skill or a particular job i think it's easier to observe what's happening and what that means. So something I often say is that computers are good at the jobs we find hard, bad at the jobs we find easy, right? What I mean by that is that we're not designed as human beings to lift and carry heavy objects, to do repetitive tasks, to work in burning buildings, to dig holes, drill holes. We're not built with calculators or processes in here. We've always used tools to help us do these things. And it's just getting to a point where those tools are better than us at doing many of them. But it's very difficult for hardware or software to do the things that are fundamentally human. So care, compassion, ingenuity, dealing with ambiguity, being innovative, having initiative, being entrepreneurial, dealing with change, being able to communicate or empower, being empathetic, being iterative, designing the act of synthesis and so on. And what we're seeing is a transition from the first category of work to the second. And so if I was thinking about change management and ongoing change management i'd be trying to build the muscle that allows us to keep changing rather than be saying here's a transformation exercise we're going from here to here three years time we'll be there and we can do something else i think it's much it, it's probably a bit more complex but also very doable because i think people want want this i think most people you know lost count the number of times i've been sitting in a bar or on a ferry or something and somebody said oh yeah no robot's going to take our jobs people know this is happening and i think they're ready for it they're ready for the change so it's almost as if you're advising that the place that would really fundamentally help in this shift is for people that are experts in change to be upskilling and uplifting others with a capability to adopt change. Correct. Yeah. And so the next question, obviously, for those people is, OK, well, what what do those capabilities look like and how do I describe that? Into which I would say, well, that's what Fathom does. <laughs> right. So we have the data that describes that future state. 
and the ability to then say, okay, what does it mean for the, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you a real example, right? So it's likely that we'll have about 35 less account, the 35% less accounting work going on over the next 10 years. We're going to automate a bunch of accounting, the regulatory stuff, the routine reporting stuff, all the compliance stuff that's going to get automated. So we're going to have a few accountants in every company, particularly the large ones that we're not going to need in those jobs. Just hold that separate thought. There's a global cybersecurity talent shortage. Right, we know why that is. Don't need to explain it. So I mentioned earlier we have this occupational ontology that describes every job at the kind of molecular level. So all the different things that they do and the skills and knowledge and so on that they need. So when you peel back the job title of accountant and cyber analyst, they're really, really similar jobs. When you think about it, they're not working on a ship or a mine or a field or the military. They're in an office in teams of half a dozen, behind a computer, analyzing numbers, detecting patterns, creating insights that they communicate to leaders to inform decisions. The difference is cybersecurity knowledge, and that's a trainable gap. So it does not make any kind of sense to spend 50 grand ahead on these accountants in redundancy and change management, and 50 grand ahead on higher salaries for the cyber professionals and the recruitment fees and so on. And what we could be doing is teaching those accountants to do cyber work. And my guess is that you go to most of these accountants and you talk to them about that and they bite your arm off. You know, accountants, they're well-read, they're knowledgeable. You know, if I was the head of finance at you know, a bank and somebody said, hey, Mike, two things, automation and redundancy or automation and retrain to cyber, I'd be like, yeah, I'll take that one, please. I've got a mortgage to pay. You know, I think people want it. Thank you. And for listeners of today's show, do you have anything further to advise them on change and the role that they can take in this this current state? I mean, maybe maybe if I can just sort of leave you with one thing, that's a, the kind of the way that I, maybe this is advice, I would view this if I was working in change management. So I think that the fourth industrial revolution is the worst possible term for this period. It is a terrible, terrible term. You say revolution, you're thinking kind of power and people and conflict and, you know, like I say, I grew up in the north of England, you say industrial revolution to me, I think of Larry and matchstick men and matchstick cats and dogs and smoky old towns and these terrible factories and all that sort of stuff. They're very evocative of the worker oppression. And there have been two instances in history when science and technology have changed every job. And we called them the first and second renaissance. I don't see when we, you know, I don't see why when we, when we look back in 20, 30 years, we want to call this a third renaissance, a humanization of work. The use of technology to take the things that we don't want to be doing anyway and the freeing up of people to do things that add more value, that are more productive, that are more interpersonal, fundamentally more human. And given that the scale of the change and the pace of the change and how interesting it all is, I think from a change management perspective, you can either be intimidated by that or embracing of it and say, you know, yeah, I mean, it's complex and yeah, it's challenging, but really interesting and get it right, really rewarding, and you have a real impact. And all you need is a bit of data and a, and a point of view, and off you go. And that's, that's pretty liberating as well, I think. You know, I think change managers and people leading organizational, operational, process, whatever change, are at the heart of this era. You know, I think they, they're in a, if they're doing these jobs right now, then they should be, or could be, if they want to be, invaluable in terms of making sure that this is well managed. And all they need to do is start... An amazing point to leave it on, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, absolute inspiration for those that are listening and with the opportunity to be in that seat. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you. All right. No worries. Take care. See you. 
Thank you so much for listening to Change It, bringing you tools, tips and takeaways from experts in change. I'm Eloise, a recruiter that's passionate about the change field. If you're a practitioner in change or transformation that's looking to further progress yourself, then please get in contact today. I'd love to assist.